box is generally a you know two or three story single family home, and that's about it. Uh, so we, I think knowing that we need to get a lot more creative about how we're living, uh, I think means that we need to we need to raise that bar and and enable more of that creativity because cities should be a little messy. My name is Valerie Navarrete, and welcome to Life Without Us, a podcast that shares stories about living in and nourishing community to inspire more of us to have more us in our lives. I'm pretty excited to be releasing podcast episodes again after taking a break to focus on the health of my family. Thanks to everyone who has sent well wishes to my mom and big love to those who've been supporting her and our family directly through her amputation and chemotherapy journey. Today's episode features my friend, Craig Rattan, who's been part of my care community through this journey. We connected for this interview last spring, just three weeks after he moved into his new home, which he co-bought with his fiance Alex and their friends, Mike and Heather. Craig is the Policy Director for Energy, Housing, and Economic Enablers at the Toronto Region Board of Trade. There, he works with the region's business community to develop and promote policies that make Toronto a better place to live and to work. Craig is an advocate for building livable, inclusive, and resilient communities, and has worked to make positive change through roles in the government, not-for-profit, and private sectors. On today's episode, Craig and I talk about the house-hunting journey that brought him and his aspiring co-housemates face-to-face with some of the urban housing issues he was already familiar with as a public policy leader. We unpack the compromise they had to make to get their community started, his hopes for the future growth and impact of their home as a community hub, and his perspective on the choices that need to be made to replace profit with people as the focus of Toronto housing policy. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with your community, and of course, your subscriptions, ratings, and reviews are always appreciated. We want Life Without Us to be a platform for collaboration, so please send us your questions as well as guest, co-hosts, and topic ideas. You can interact with us online at lifewithoutuspod.com and on Instagram at lifewithoutuspod. You can find Craig on Twitter at CRUT, that's at C-R-U-T. For links to the other references in today's episode, please check out the show notes. Today's interview starts with Craig describing his house hunt last winter. He does a great job painting a picture of how it unfolded. I'm certain you'll enjoy going on the search with him. Let's get started. Craig, welcome to Life Without Us, the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Val. So you you bought a house. Uh, <laughs> you bought a house. Very exciting. Uh, tell me a little bit about who you bought this house with. Yeah. So uh, I bought the house with my partner, Alex, uh, and another couple who are good friends, Mike and Heather. Um, yeah, I've known Mike uh, for almost a decade now, which feels crazy. Uh, and it's always been uh, a root of community and uh, a burning passion of his for the last, you know, seven or eight years. And so to be part of bringing that to fruition and getting to be part of co-creating this and, and buying this house together feels really special. Thank you for sharing. It sounds like a really special journey. I'd love to learn a little bit about your house hunt. How did that get started? 
Yeah, uh, it's it started in earnest uh, this past fall. Uh, Mike and Heather fired the the starting pistol and put it a call to see who was interested. And it was something that had been on on my mind for a little bit. Mine and Alex, uh, we talked about it during the pandemic largely and thought, you know, um, we have the uh, you know opportunity and resources thanks to um, parent support um, was a critical part of it. And so uh, the the thought came to mind, and then the opportunity came up uh, with Mike and Heather coming forward. We stepped up and started uh, dreaming, started with values, uh, continued to to look at you know what are our priorities, what are our non-negotiables in terms of what we're looking for. And we kind of just jumped into it and uh, started going to view houses before we even you know, had a realtor or had talked to any, just started poking around to see, you know, does this seem workable? What kind of thing are we looking for? And, uh, and went from there, got a realtor just around Christmas. And then uh, by the beginning of February, had found our home. So cool. I mean, that sounds fast. Uh, what was it about the home that you bought that called to you all? What, what drew you in, especially from a co-housing and co-owning perspective? Yeah, absolutely. So we, in our approach to, to co-housing, a little different than, than Clarence Commons, we, we took an approach where we knew we wanted to live together, but also have our own spaces. And so we were looking for a multi-unit house. Um, and ideally, we were looking for a triplex because we had other um, triplex or, or even a fourplex if it was available um, within our budget, which we knew might be challenging. But we wanted a space where multiple groups of folks could live together and we could also build and become a hub for further community. And so that's where a lot of the priorities around wanting good transit access, you know, both for ourselves and for others to be able to come, uh, wanting sufficient space where it felt like we could host and have other people over and, and enough units to grow. And uh, as we, the, the, the house that we found, um, we've called, we, we've come up with a name for the house. Um, our house is What's the tree. The name? <laughs> the name is the tree house. Love it. <laughs> because it, the properties, it, the property is incredible. Uh, it's right at Bloor and Dufferin. Uh, it is a big lot. The, the previous owner planted a, a lot of trees. I think we have about 10 trees on the property. Um, some uh, lilac trees that I can't wait to see bloom, uh, a bunch of cedar trees. And there was this feeling of sanctuary in the backyard. There's a, there's a fountain in the backyard that uh, has sort of, a, we call it the babbling brook. And it's that like that auditory design that wipes out all the noise of traffic nearby. And all of a sudden you're in this quiet, peaceful nature sanctuary. And to top it off, the house had two spacious two bedroom units that both were unique and different, but shared a really beautiful energy. And the the sweetener that made it all possible is that the house also has a, a zoned site for a laneway suite. And so uh, we weren't looking at duplexes originally because we wanted that space for a third group, but we realized we could create that here uh, by turning the garage into a laneway house. Um, so that's the the mixture of things that came together that uh, made it possible. It sounds like an amazing place. I can't wait to see it and very excited about uh, learning your journey through laneway house development. <laughs> so are we. <laughs> Construction projects are always fun. <laughs> <laughs> Never go wrong. 
so you mentioned doing some work around talking about your your vision or your values. Um, can you share a little bit about what they were and and do you feel like the experience has been true to them so far? Yeah. Uh, so we started with five values that we all of us aligned on. Uh, they were space, more living space in a low density neighborhood. Uh, uh, hub, so wanting to be a hub for creating community events and bringing people together. Nature, a place that could connect us to biodiversity, to food, to a, a feeling of sanctuary. People, uh, the, the people factor was really important, you know, growing our interpersonal relationships and really uh, rooting into that. And then advocacy and using it as a place to promote co-housing. Uh, so, I mean, at the time we're speaking, we've only been living together for about two to three weeks so far, but the whole process, I think it really helped having those as a, uh, a frame of reference to go back to and make sure we were thinking about the, the right things, both in terms of evaluating properties, but then also in terms of what we were choosing to do together and, and how to do it. And it helped make some things clear about the the need for, to make the vision a reality, the need for some form of shared common space so that we could get people to gather and, and bring them in. And it, it really helped us get clear on what we needed and wanted and why. Uh, and so thus far, I think it it did guide us. And the, I mean, the people aspect has been so fascinating. It, I mean, it's, it's still continuing to sink in uh, that it's more than, you know, it, in some ways, in some ways, this house isn't any different than the situation Alex and I were in before. We were in an apartment in a four unit house there. Uh, and so we shared a house with other people, but we, you know, lived on our own and interacted when, when necessary. But, you know, here, especially when you're co-owners, and the, the choices that we've made and the designs that we've made, we live together. Uh, despite being in different units, we live together. And there's so much that brings us together. And just that feeling of knowing there's a friend upstairs that you can always just go to see or pop down and spend time in the backyard or be starting to think about and, and work on different projects together. Uh, it's been really neat so far. Craig, you and I talked about how the there's sort of a long history within queer communities of concepts like chosen family and, um, you know, living family and experiences of what home looks like, uh, sometimes diff looking differently, very sadly, because prejudice and discrimination has meant that for a lot of queer folks, their family of origin doesn't feel like a place... Um, of home and, and is not always a welcoming family. And I'm curious to know, do you feel any relationship between the way you've centered community in your life and those concepts of queer community? Yeah, it, it's a great question. I feel so, I feel so drawn to community. Uh, and it's something that I'm still sort of processing and working through what that means to me and, and where, um, where it comes from. I, I do see a relationship in terms of surrounding myself with, with people who share my values, um, with places where you can feel accepted and fully seen, I think, is one of those things we all want. Every human wants that. Uh, and for some folks, it's harder to find that space than others. Um, it, it's interesting for me. I like it. Yeah, I think it's part of an evolving journey. I have found myself you know, comfortable in many predominantly straight environments and 
Uh, many of the communities I've participated in have been largely straight. A lot of my my good friends have been straight men. And so there is an aspect of of longing for a real queer community to participate in and, and root with. Uh, and and something that, you know, I I feel a bit of an absence of that has been, you know, solidified from uh, during COVID when, you know, the spaces that I would go for that for, whether it be a bar or a party, um, aren't open right now, aren't possible. And yet there is still a way where that choice of community comes forward. And I think that's what's beautiful about the home we're building is that uh, desire to be a place for us to be our authentic selves and uh, to, to hold that space for others to participate too. Uh, yeah, just it's, it's, a, it's a place where we can be ourselves. I, I remember thinking last week we had, uh, Alex and I went up to Mike and Heather's living room last week to watch RuPaul's Drag Race on Friday night. And, uh, and then the next night we watched a, 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 another movie and it struck me that, you know, these are the things that Alex and I would do on our own before. And it was very much, you know, our, our home selves, our private selves in our apartment, you know, without anyone else there. And these were now rituals and traditions and experiences we got to share with someone else. And so that really did feel like that growth of family and community. And it was really beautiful. Thank you for sharing. Um, as we Talking as we're talking about community and belonging, you mentioned there had been a bigger group at the start, and I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit more about that and how you're feeling about the fact that you weren't able to find something that would work for everybody right away, and that it will take some time to build that. Yeah, that was definitely a challenging part of the process. Um, so when Mike and Heather put out the call. Uh, we stepped up and you know were in a position to be able to put money into the house right away uh, in order to, to to buy the house. And there were uh, two other groups, uh, a couple and a single person who were also both interested, but in in renting rather than uh, you know being in a position to be part of the a co-purchaser right off off the top. and And so that was difficult to navigate. We, we spent some time, you know, thinking and talking about how to approach it and to try and approach it equally and, you know, all be going to look for properties together. And is there a way we could find a house that would work for all four of us? And ultimately realized that we were going to need to compromise somewhere, whether it was in the amount of space we were looking for or in the location. Uh, you know, we started looking at a couple of four unit houses. Um, but both the price point on them was often higher than the range we, we thought would be possible uh, for us to do. And also, uh, the, the units, you know, weren't, weren't sparking joy for us, weren't, um, really drawing us in. And so we, yeah, I, I, I think the, the relationship parts were the hardest in terms of, you know, explaining and understanding Mike and the, the four of us who ended up as the co-owners made a decision collectively that we would, you know, be the core and, and drive the process ourselves and uh, keep the others in mind and give them first right of refusal on whatever unit we found and that we would try to find something that would work for 
at least uh, you know one of those other groups, uh, if not both. And and that is one of the things that excited us about this house is that the the units are all family sized, and so for uh, the couple who is you know thinking about starting a family, that that potential is here in the house feels really good. But it was a it was a challenging thing to to navigate. Um, there's definitely other ways we could have approached it. Uh, but then again, if if we had done those, I don't think we would have ended up choosing this house either. So uh, it's it's hard. The housing market is hard, um, especially right now. Uh, and for anyone looking to purchase, um, yeah, there's a lot of uh, a lot of competition, and prices are high, and it doesn't always make a lot of sense or or feel good. And so yeah, sometimes. I feel like every time something has to give, and the question is what? You have an expertise in this area around, you know, housing and uh, its availability in the city. And I'm curious, as you were going through this experience, what was coming up from you in that in that policy side of your brain as you were doing the search and trying to find a four-unit house and struggling to do so, especially at a price point that you could afford? Absolutely. Yeah, it was it was front of mind. It's been an uh, an interest of mine for a long time and then uh, a key part of my work for the last uh, almost two years now. So uh, it was exciting to be able to go out and say, you know, one house we saw, they mentioned it had garden suite potential. So knowing all about that motion that was coming to council and the study that was going on, that excited me. And uh and then finding this property that has the laneway house potential also, you know, super exciting uh, because it's, yeah, it, it's both the policy work I do, but also my personal beliefs that to be more, to be more sustainable environmentally and socially, we should be living more densely together and finding more ways to, to live better together, to live more closely together. And, and a lot of that, I think is the is this the type of solutions I'm looking for and that I think are that we found and that I think would be helpful to a lot of other people are these uh, these the missing middle and increased density in existing neighborhoods. And so it's it's frustrating when to see so many houses that were designed for investors or that feel like they're tailored for investors to purchase. Uh, you know, getting people telling us all about the cap rates on different properties and how quickly your investment could pay off on it. The other interesting thing was seeing a lot of houses where there was one unit that was quite large, maybe three bedroom, and then maybe two or three units that were one bedroom that were, you know, there was a lot of, uh, inequity in terms of the size of the units. And it was often billed as a larger unit for the owner to live in, and then you rent out the other ones for income. And, you know, that's better than an enormous mansion just for one family, in my opinion. Uh, but in terms of what we were looking for, it was frustrating to, you know, could we find a property where we feel like we have equal space, where our needs could be met and where there's room for us to grow? Uh, and that, that was a, a difficult thing to search for. Do you feel like what you, Alex, Heather, and Mike are doing is part of the solution when we think about housing supply and density issues? I think it is. Yeah, I I think we should have 
more duplexes, more triplexes, more you know multi-unit buildings, and it's. Uh, I've been doing a lot of thinking recently about the the wealth creation that comes from owning homes and property. Uh, I've had a lot of conversations with uh, Habitat for Humanity and the Black North Initiative that are doing a lot of work on addressing uh, racial injustice, uh, addressing anti-Black racism in the housing sector, and that a lot of that intergenerational wealth uh, disparity that occurs comes from ownership of property, that you know the greatest asset many people own is, is a home, and that white families are often in a much better position to, you know, open up the bank of mom and dad and help their uh, children buy houses, as happened in our case, uh, while others don't have that chance. And, and so I, it's both, I believe in multi-unit living, and I feel like it's so much better when folks can purchase and own it on their own instead of just renting. And I think there are other solutions that can help approach that too. One I'm really interested in is strata ownership. So making it possible in a three or four unit house for someone to purchase one of the units. Uh, so not necessarily, so, you know, we went in together, all four of us and purchased the full property, but maybe there's a world with some legislative changes where it becomes easier to, uh, to sell and, and purchase just a floor of a house and keep living together that way. Because um, that gives you both affordability, but also that sense of community and that neighborhood feel that you don't always get in a tall condo building. Hmm. Well, even for people in co-ownership situations, you know, I hope this works really well for all of you for years. But say, you know, one couple wants to leave at, at this current stage, it wouldn't be possible to sort of say, well, let's separate this into two units and just, you know, you have to navigate that differently. So. Absolutely. Yeah. And those were those exit discussions. I know you went through those in planning Clarence Commons too. Um, and then actually, you know, you hope it never comes to it and then it actually comes up and it um, happened. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's, they're tough conversations up front, but also it's definitely better to have them up front than, you know, leave it open and try and figure it out in the middle of, of so many other things going on. So I'm hearing, you know, what you're, you're doing is part of a solution. There are many other things that need to happen. I'm curious, how does it make you feel then when you hear of neighborhoods and, and usually folks in single detached homes get so upset when there's new builds uh, that are aiming to densify, that are aiming to create uh, more accessible uh, housing and, and more affordably priced housing? Yeah, it, it makes me angry. <laughs> it makes me frustrated. I try and empathize. There's a natural human tendency to be scared of change. And so... I try and appreciate that, but it it also comes back to this idea of uh, of privilege, really, and the privilege of being a homeowner, and the expectation that that means that nothing around you will change without your say so, without your agreement. Uh, I uh, uh, in my, in the place that Alex and I were just renting in Little Portugal. Uh, the city proposed a modular supportive housing site right around the corner. Uh, 44 new units for uh, folks who were experiencing homelessness or at risk of homelessness to get a, a studio apartment of their own. And uh, the site was city-owned land. I remember what uh, the city's uh, affordable housing secretary director, Abby Bond, said at the first consultation meeting, which was, you know, 
we are here to hear your views, but also you don't get to choose your neighbors. That's not the way the city works ever in terms of getting to choose your neighbors. And so we'll hear your concerns and questions. We'll answer them. We will you know, do what we can to, to listen to that and reflect that. But this is going ahead. And I appreciate that, that bravery. And I think we need more of that attitude. The, the challenge comes when, when by design, uh, politicians, decision makers, others have, have designed systems and rules where folks get a veto, either directly in terms of forcing things to go to a committee of adjustment or getting things signed off, or indirectly in terms of just you know, making things difficult. I think like a big part of the solution is making more things possible as of right. That's one of the, the beautiful things about the new laneway house policy is if you stay within the rules, um, you can build it and no one has a chance to veto it. And, uh, and so that's, you know, otherwise we probably wouldn't have purchased the house we did. It would have been too big a risk to not know if the, the neighbors would uh, protest or, or not want it. Uh, but knowing that we would have the ability to do it uh, made it possible for us. And so I think, you know, as of right policies uh, and increasing that availability across the board uh, needs to be part of the solution. You just dropped a term on me that I don't know. Can you say it again? As, yes, as, of, as right. of right. So basically, yeah, it, it, um, yeah, it means that you're allowed to do it automatically, that no, you don't need to apply for special um, permissions or approvals or exemptions as long as you follow the rules, um, you're, you're just allowed to do it. Cool, thank you. Uh, so it, that's the case now for laneway houses, but it's not yet for affordable housing units that I'm aware of, right? I mean, that's why we're still seeing neighborhoods be upset and try to stop things because they mm -hmm. seem to know that there's a possibility to do so. Absolutely, yeah, um, the way that uh, most cities are built and planned, uh, and Toronto is among them, is that the bar of what you're allowed to do automatically, allowed to do as of right, is really low because they they want that ability to control and adjust and modify. Uh, and so you often need to seek, um, you know, certain exemptions or permission to do anything that isn't quite within the, isn't quite within the box. And the box is generally, uh, you know, two or three story single family home. And that's about it. Uh, so we, I think knowing that we need to get a lot more creative about how we're living, uh, I think means that we need to, we need to raise that bar and, and enable more of that creativity because cities should be a little messy. Cities shouldn't be perfectly constrained and designed and sanitized. That's what makes cities a great place to be is a is a place where you know there's different and quirky things and you're you're living and learning from people who are different than you and i think that's the other big risk we face without taking changes like this we're going to become increasingly homogenous and the only folks who will be able to afford to purchase in the city or at some point even live in the city are you know the folks from bay street consulting firms banks and uh, law firms and that's not uh, the type of city I want to live in. Absolutely. And it, I'm hearing there's some policy change needed. It sounds like maybe some attitudinal change as well. You know, what is it about owning your own detached home with a certain amount of space around it that you get to call yours that we all are so attached to? You know, uh, why is it 
yourself and your, you know, and, and Alex and, and Heather and Mike are open to co-buying a home, but so many others are scared at the thought mm. of sharing space in that way, you know, and how do we, how do we shift that? So uh, a lot of conversations and, and uh, you know, uh, perception shifting that needs to happen. But from a policy perspective, is there anything else on your radar? Um, you know, we've talked about making more things uh, as of right. <laughs> uh, obviously, you know, densification is, is a big piece in order to encourage um, diversity. Anything else on your mind in terms of changes that need to happen to make housing uh, more accessible for folks and, and really start to, to live those values um, in a more authentic way within our within our country, within our cities of, of housing as a human right? Mm, that's a great question. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of things out there. A lot of things fit under those buckets we talked about already, I think. One other thing that I think would be really helpful is increased use of shared equity models. I think there's uh, that's a great way for people to get a footstep into the ownership world. There's uh, an organization called Options for Homes. They're a developer in Toronto who who does this uh, and offers folks um, some support in terms of in terms of a down payment in order to get them into a house because that down payment can be the biggest barrier to people being able to to purchase. So I think that's one aspect of it. And another aspect is the a lot of the work I've been doing this past year has been about housing for low and middle income workers specifically, and the challenges uh, a city faces if we push them out of it, as well as the challenges they face just finding a decent place to live. Um, you know, social workers often earn around fifty thousand dollars a year. Some earn less than that, and that's really hard to live on in a big city like Toronto. And, and the solution there, I think, is, I mean, we, I think we need a societal conversation around wages and the value of work and the uh, you know, fair compensation for a lot of the caring professions that have been often undervalued. And it's about, it's about building more, building more housing that is designed for, for people in these income brackets and, and that is um, mixed income mixed use and and in walkable communities. And so I think it's there needs to be some intentionality in terms of designing and building the programs. There's a lot of government programs underway right now that are that are good that are starting to make a dent in it and it's it's I think important not to get discouraged by the size of the problem and to remember that everything that is chipping away at it helps. Uh, and yeah, and it it just needs to be a a continual focus. We can't lose sight of it as part of everything else where all the other big societal problems we're trying to solve together. Absolutely. And, and, and the relationship between them as well, right? If you do yeah. something on income, you're contributing to, you know, the issue of housing and, and vice versa. So uh, being thoughtful about those interrelationships. Mm -hmm. I'm going to move us to our final question, um, which, you know, you and I have talked about the idea of potentially having you on a second episode sometime in the future. And you've just, you know, you've just bought, you've just moved in, it seems to be going well, but uh, I don't know, six months from now, I drop by your house unexpectedly on a Saturday afternoon. What's your vision for what I'll find there? What will the four of you be up to? Mm. I love that question. Uh, yeah, I mean, 
I think we'll have the barbecue running in the backyard, uh, you know, having food and drink for people who are able to stop by and gather and hang out in our sanctuary of a backyard. Uh, maybe later on in the evening, we'll have a dance party in the garage. Uh, there's so much space to dance, which is something I've been missing for the last year. And, and I think it's going to be a mixture of work and socializing and community that I'm hoping just seamlessly flows together. Uh, you know, a, a vibrant garden, working on other projects. Uh, we're talking about trying to build a sauna maybe in the backyard, which would be pretty amazing. And also trying to, uh, yeah, be bringing, be bringing ourselves together and, and other people together in a way that can, uh, that can strengthen this community and, and our bonds to it. We're already building great relationships with our neighbors, which feels really good. And I think there's, yeah, there's a lot of ways we can, we can build a space, I think, to, to educate and inspire and just connect and have a lot of fun. It sounds so great. I cannot wait for this pandemic to be over so I can I come hang out with you all in your backyard. <laughs> I agree. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. And uh, let's do another one in a little while and see how things are going. Would love to. Thanks so much, Val. This is such a such an important topic to be talking about. And I'm so honored and grateful to be part of this community experiment. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Life Without Us. Reminder to check the show notes for links to information shared in today's episode. To please share Craig's story with the community lover in your life using the link in the show notes. And to come interact with us online or via Instagram at Life Without Us Pod. Please join us next week when we'll be talking to Natalie Bay about food as community's magic ingredient. As today's episode revealed, the barriers to co-housing and co-living are not just attitudinal, Urban housing stock is literally being developed to support a world in which most of us live alone or in couples. So how did all those people living solo foster connection during the pandemic lockdowns? Tune in next Tuesday to hear one friend group story.